Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you took a moment to follow it on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcast. Today is one of the most special podcasts I do each year where I'm able to interview the grand prize winners of the Writers and Illustrators of the Feature Contest. This year it's for volume 39. And so I'd like to welcome as the grand prize writer winner, David Henriksen, and the grand prize illustrator winner, Dal V. Welcome, gentlemen. Pleasure Thank meeting you. you. Yep. Good to be here. All right. So um, I got all kinds of questions, so we'll just start off. So Dave, Dave or David? Either one. I normally go by Dave. Okay, good. So Dave, so can you give me your trajectory as a writer? Because a lot of people listening to stuff here who maybe are on the um, second second career, career yes. part of life, so it's, which makes you very, very special. Right. In fact, I, we, were, we were wondering, actually, if I was the oldest person to have ever, ever won the grand prize. I figured I had to be up there. Um, you're up there, I, but you're not the oldest. We've, uh, okay. Well, that's, that's sort of comforting in a way. I'm actually 68 at this point in time. We've had 72. Okay. So... So I've got four so we're, years. So we're an equal opportunity contest. <laughs> that's right. Well, and that's, and that's, I don't know if people know that, but you, you uh, read blindly. So they have no, absolutely no way of knowing how old you are, you know, what your gender, anything of that when they read your stories. So if you get accepted into the, into the uh, contest or, you know, win a spot, it's on, it's on uh, talent. It's yeah, not, it's not. So it's all it is, and so that's really, uh, it's really very nice. Um, as far as my uh, life tra- trajectory went, um, well, I've always been really uh, interested in science fiction. In fact, it has been my vocation my entire life. Even though, when you're young, you don't tend to think in those terms. Um, but very quickly on, it was really the only thing I ever wanted to do. At some point, you you start reading a lot of uh, fiction, and then at some point along uh, that pathway. One day you get this thought, maybe I could write it. And um, when that happens, it's a scary moment, but the light bulb kind of goes on in your head if you really do, you know, have that creative urge, and that sets you off on, you know, another trajectory. So that happened to me when I was about 12, I guess. And um, uh, for many years, it's just, you're young. It's just just more of a dream than anything else. But I did, uh, you know, you start writing little by little, I got in, interested in it in, um, by the time I got to college, where I was starting to write smaller things. I actually won a couple of minor awards at the University of Michigan uh, when I was attending there. Um, in 82, uh, I'm really old, um, I was 28, and I um, applied to the Clarion um, Science Fiction and Fantasy Workshop, which at that time was a six-week um, uh, workshop that was being run out of East Lansing, Michigan, which is not very far from, from where I was going to school, but it's six weeks out of your, your life. And you know, if I w- had been holding down a regular job, there's absolutely no way somebody's going to give you six weeks off. No. Um, it, but it turned out that um, uh, I, wasn't that dispens- I wasn't that indispensable <laughs> to the organization. And um, so anyway, I went to the workshop <laughs> and, uh, and it was, it was Mind expanding. Uh, it wasn't even mind blowing. It was just um, when you get there, it was like um, after the first day I'd been there, I felt like I'd been there a week. After I'd been there a week, I couldn't ever imagine kind of like not being there anymore because it was just that 
that uh, altering of an experience. Uh, and so you really get charged up from that kind of experience. Uh, unfortunately, um, I was still only 28, and you get a lot of theory um, uh, pushed at you. Of course, there's any number of ways people will say you, you should write or they write or whatever. And uh, after that, even though it, you come out of that kind of program really charged up, um, I didn't, um, what I learned didn't really apply to me. And so in some ways it really hurt my writing, even though it, entered, it made me want to write even more. Right. And so um, I got into a situation where um, my, one of my big problems was I w couldn't finish things. And of course, the, what's one thing that the writers tell you is, well, if you never finish anything, you're never going to sell anything. No one will ever read your stuff. You can't give somebody half a story and say, hey, did you like my half a story? Um, so um, I got to the point where, um, and this is where you know life comes along and, and, and sends you down another pathway. I got to the point where I wasn't being ha I wasn't happy. I wasn't being good to myself, and so I said, "Okay, well, you love science fiction. You love to write, but what's really screwing you up at the moment is the the, the uh, feeling that I needed to be a published author. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd make a sense. Well, by thirty, I'm going to have something published. By thirty-two, I'm going to have something published. But you know, and every time I missed one of those deadlines, I beat myself up. And after a while, I thought, this is really stupid. You're you know, I'm making, I'm literally, the world isn't making me miserable. I'm making me miserable. And so at that point in time, I decided, well, um, I'll, you know, I will keep writing. I won't worry about um, selling anything, which is, of course, if I really, if I really enjoy writing, then that should be the most important thing. And I went off and I got another job, which is basically I fell into uh, computer programming, which at the time was kind of a new frontier. It was interesting because um, most schools didn't even have computer science programs. Um, right. If you got a job in a programmer, literally you'd walk in to a place who's advertising and they say, they would see that you're reasonably intelligent, you're a warm body, you've got two hands, we'll teach you how to program. And so it was easy to get into the programming field at that time. And so I did that and um, while still writing on the side. Um, but of course, as a regular full-time job, it takes up your time. Um, I ended up, um, you know, uh, falling for in love with someone and, you know, that takes up part of your time <laughs> yeah, as well. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and right, but then of course computers came out, and suddenly there there are video games, and boy, those really take up your time, <laughs> especially if you play them with the person you love. Mm -hmm. um, so I did that for many years, and then uh, having nothing to do with the writing, though, eventually I sort of worked up the, the rank of in the programming, where you become a team lead, and then you become you lead a department, and I became an architect at some point, which is where you get to actually design the application. But then of course they throw you into management at some point, which if you're programmer and you're creative that's hell um and it's even more stressful so uh i got to the point when i was about 55 i'm going to say and um i was in that management hell and um to the point where i was thinking about retiring early even if i didn't have the money and so i started writing again i mean seriously this time right and again this is going to be sound strange for people who are younger like dow's age here um when I started writing, there were no um, word processors. We we had I had a I remember getting a, a nice portable typewriter for a birthday at one point, mm -hmm. and those old manual keys, bang 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 bang. Yep. And I didn't know how to type because at that time boys did not take typing classes, and I really regret that over the years. But finally, they came out with with um, you know, word processors, and honestly, I don't know how people like Dickens and those people wrote because longhand and. Um, for me, I need to I need to write something. If I don't like it, I switch it around, replace words. 
it suddenly became much easier to write with the word processor. Back in those days, cut and paste was really that. You'd have scissors on the paper, you'd cut it and paste it. Or, or, or all the whiteout, or I remember having a Even type. Even pre-best pre-whiteout, like when, when Mr. Hubbard was writing. Oh, yes. You know, that's, what, that's where the term originally came from, was cut and paste, was yeah. that. There was no whiteout, it was pre-whiteout. Yeah, and so that's even further back. I, or even the, I don't know if um, you could actually get typewriter ribbons that actually had an eraser band in them. So when you wanted to erase something, you could actually flip a little switch and suddenly you could go back and type stuff. Anyway, it was, it was a very labor and time-intensive process. Um, and when people would say, yeah, you're normally going to have to do six or eight um, drafts of a novel, and you think you're trying to do this on a typewriter, it's, like, it's so daunting. Mm -hmm. And so the technology really enabled me and I'm sure lots of other people to be actually able to um, uh, write much more easily. So at that point in time, I started to um, write some more while I was still sort of, like, sort of um, gunning for my retirement, you know, aiming ahead of that. And um, so I retired at... Um, uh, 2020, virtually on the day that COVID started, it was mm. really just kind of weird. Um, and an odd thing happens uh, that happened to me is that um, you spend all this time working for your retirement, and um, suddenly you retire, and the whole idea was supposedly you don't have to do anything when you're retired, but suddenly you feel this driving urge to do something. And so it really began to feel like even though I could sit there all day long and, and watch TV or go out and play golf or something like that, if I wasn't doing something important, I was wasting whatever time I had left. And so that's when um, I really decided that writing every day made me happy. And uh, I started, at that point in time, I finally started to get back into the um, idea of trying to get something sold. So I've been writing all these years, and I actually have a lot of stuff piled up, which is kind of like, I've actually finished about eight novels. I've got another six that are somewhere along the pipeline and a whole bunch of other ideas which are just waiting out there to be read. And um, so now I'm back into the can I get published stage. So that has been my kind of career That's arc. your career. Okay, great. So thank you for that. Now, Dow, so um, you're on the lower end of your life spectrum. <laughs> <laughs> Just having entered the, the professional or business. Or am I in the lower end? I don't know which one. <laughs> you've, got, you've got a lot of years ahead of you. Yeah, he's on his first career. You're on your second. So um, how'd you, you know, your, your whole art, which is just brilliant. I, I love your art and the depth that you create in that stuff and the perspective. So your trajectory as an artist, please. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And and it's just really cool just listening to Dave's story, just kind of hearing, you know, his experience, you know, and, and his career kind of go through. And it's really fascinating and inspiring. Yeah. Um, and my story is definitely nowhere near as evocative as Dave's. Um, give it, give it a, few, <laughs> a few decades. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. Maybe when I hit my 70s, I'll, I'll be able to tell a good story the, like the you. The good old war story back <laughs> yeah. um, But... One of my first experience with art, uh, I think, was back in 20, uh, 2011 when, when my f family and I first migrated from Vietnam. Um, I think that was when um, my cousin first introduced me to uh, a video game called A League of Legends. I don't know if you guys ever heard of that. Mm -hmm. And um, essentially in the game, you have these like little cards of illustrations of like these characters, these heroes that would be displaced. I guess you can 
kind of compared them as to like Magic of the Gathering cards or like right. Dungeons and Dragons. And so um, that to me was kind of like my first introduction to digital art. And I was always fascinated by the way they were done and, and how they were composed and illustrated. Um, but it never really occurred to me that it was there was somebody behind the scene actually doing and drawing these pieces of illustration. To me at the time, I thought, you know, I was like, okay, they're probably just like computer generated somehow or just like somebody behind the scene just like clicking a button and then, then boom, it's just there. <laughs> um, and so like to me, that was fascinating. But it never really occurred to me that, you know, you can actually do this as a job and, you know, get a career out of it. And, um, um, and as the, as, as time goes by and as I grew older, um, my, my interest in art actually kind of fell, uh, fell short and I, I began kind of losing interest in it. Um, because I didn't, didn't really know how far I could take my art and where I could really go. Um, most of my childhood was just mostly, you know, just sketching and doodling in the back of my notebook while, you know, sitting in class and not paying attention <laughs> and all that stuff. Um, but that was, you know, that was the extent of it. And I, I didn't really, you know, see myself going any further with it. And um, and I think it wasn't until um, at the end of my high school years where just seeing all my friends, you know, getting their, getting into their dream university and going into, you know, um, their uh, venturing off into their new chapter. And it, it wasn't until that point where I was a bit stuck and kind of lost because um, it was at that time where I was rejected by most of my universities that I initially wanted to go to. Um, I think it was that time where I, I initially that's wanted That's what you get for doodling and not paying attention. Right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Looking back, that, that totally <laughs> makes sense now. <laughs> we won't ask you what your GPA was. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, that's fair. Um, but yeah, it, it was just, it was really, it was really tough. Um, just kind of the feeling of like being, being left behind in a way uh-huh. mm-hmm. that kind of struck me. And it was just like, um, kind of put me in that panic mode. It's like, okay, well, I have to figure out something now because, you know, I, I, I have nowhere to go, nowhere to, to really go off of. And it wasn't, it was actually not until, um, you know, af- after I graduated high school, it was the end of, near towards the end of 2019. And then right after that, the start of 2020, that's when, you know, everything kind of went down. Yeah. COVID happened, the pandemic. And, um, you know, to me, looking back, I, I, I for, for me personally, I, I see COVID as, as, as sort of like a blessing in disguise because just looking back, I think there were so many things that actually happened to me uh, during COVID that um, not only helped reignite my passion and art, but, you know, to also kind of get a sense of confidence and, and that uplifting um, um, in, in just my future in general. Um, and I think a big part of that came from my parents, uh, really, because I think it was until the start pandemic where um, I, I noticed that uh, my parents, uh, you know, despite everything that was happening around and, and everything that was going on, you know, around the world, um, I noticed that my parents were, were, were always very, they always had like a sense of peace and comfort. And that really questioned me and, and as to, you know, what it was and, and just... You know, I asked them and I talked about them. And and one of the things that mentioned, they, they mentioned was, you know, through prayers and just praying. And it really, like, surprised me. And, and it gave me a lot of, you know, uh, confidence and, and peace. And so that's something that I took up. And so just being able to kind of being in that space where, you know, you're in you're isolated by yourself, kind of in that zone. And um, and just, just taking that time to really, like, reflect um, really helped me to kind of find my own path again mm-hmm. and that was something that I was super grateful for 
And so, um, yeah, and so here we are today. Next thing you know, you woke up and you're on stage getting a grand prize. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So, all right. So, um, because part of the uh, result of this podcast is I want people to actually, you know, see your art, read your story. So, at this point, if you can, Dave, if you can just take a few minutes and describe your story. All right. Why should, uh, some, why should I read your story, really? Dave? <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, I mean, when you say it like that, I'm not sure why. No, um, <laughs> so, well, this is a story that was, lo- was um, long in the making. Um, I actually had this idea for uh, the story some 30 years ago. Um, and the, um, the world, our, our understanding of the universe, um, where science fiction was at that time, um, is radically different than it is now. If you go back to that time, you talk about uh, you'll, you. There's stories about you know galactic empires, far-flung, um, um, uh, stellar um, uh, worlds. Um, that was basically um, sort of a remnant uh, from even earlier when we didn't realize how hard it was to travel to other solar systems. How immense even our small part of the galaxy—not even the entire galaxy, just a small part of our own galaxy. When you realize that within just a few tens of light years, there are thousands of stars. Mm-hmm. Um, but more importantly, how hard it would ever be to get there in any kind of reasonable time frame. Uh, and people at that time had kind of ignored those factors because they wanted to tell a good story. And they, you know, and there are good stories. Um, but as the further we we the more we know, sort of the further those dreams recede. It's like reading um, John Carter on Mars. You know, it's those are great stories. But we know Mars isn't like that, and we know, you know. So we end up taking a more realistic view of things. So um, one of the other ideas, uh, so that's sort of the background of of where I was thinking about the story. And I was always fascinated with the idea of um, an alien race, well, alien races that that are basically, I mean, truly different than our own, not just um, superficially so. And uh, for me, those things tend to be around issues of uh, biology, of the way they reproduce, of their natural environment. And at some point, I got the idea of a a race that was uh, naturally migratory, that humans are very territorial. I mean, and most, a lot of species on on Earth are. I mean, Mm -hmm. they they stake a section of land and they claim it. And, um, you know, intruders are, are fought or warned off or whatever. And I like the I like the idea of a race that had no home that just kept moving, and so they wouldn't have a territorial imperative. And to me, that implied that they wouldn't necessarily have a lot of the same um, triggers that humans do. Right. The, the the natural urge to be aggressive, you know, to to have to go into a combative mode to defend what's yours, you know, um, and so as. Originally, when I first got the idea of 30 years ago, I didn't take it much further than that. But now we know a lot more about the about the universe, and one of the um, the places where people have talked about the fact that there actually might be life are around red dwarf stars. There are a lot of red dwarf stars. There are very, they, in some way, they represent a very stable part. It's after a red dwarf star evolves when a lot of the nuclear f- fuel in the sun has burned away, and the star becomes um, smaller dimmer, uh, and um, quiet, mm-hmm. in one sense of the word. Right. Um, and generally in those situations, I think we're starting to find that there's a lot of uh, uh, planets that still exist around those things, but they exist fairly close to the, the sun. 
Which is not a bad thing because they're cool, so there's actually the habitable zone of those planets tend to be closer to the, the sun. It, 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 what it basically ends up, you end up with a planet which is radically different than ours. In some ways, it's more stable because quite often they're tidally locked. I don't know if I'm getting too technical here. You started going in. I'll, I'll pull back a little bit. It's, anyway, I mean, so, after all, your story is... Right. So I'll, I'll, the white elephant. So Exactly. So, so anyway, these, they evolved in an, in an environment where um, they needed to migrate on their own planet to survive unstable and violent conditions. And so basically for them, safety was escaping from, the, from the, um, uh, their, that planet, and they took their migratory nature with them. And so now they sort of exist uh, among the stars as separate clades of their people basically traveling. Mm-hmm. They, they don't like to stay in one place. And they also have a, um, a, a, two, um, a two-phase life system where they're, uh, sometimes they're terrestrial forms, and other times they become um, modal. They actually um, uh, drift away on the wind to find a new place to live. So this is kind of the way they see the world. And at some point, they're traveling along, and they know of us because we send out signals into space. We're not a secret to them. I love Lucy. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> I mean, it's it's um, you know they often say that the first thing it was ever people ever hear was the the, the um, uh, Olympic Games. You know, with yeah. Alpha. That's not really true because it's more complicated than that. But anyway, they know of us. Yes. Their, their instruments are, are are better than ours. So they decided to come by and take a look because they're they're a naturally curious race. As they pass by, um, they, uh, the Oort cloud, which is actually is actually this vast um, cloud of material that goes out like one and a half light years away from Earth, Earth they actually wander into a, a planetoid. Um, you know, the odds are astronomical, but not impossible. And they run into this thing, and it damages their craft. Now, they're in a situation where um, they've been traveling for decades, um, they could travel for another. They can travel for a while longer, but at some point, they need to find some place where they can transition to their other form, um, or they'll die. And so, the only place they have to go is our solar system. That that we we're close, and there are a lot of them because it's a world ship. It's it's right. about it's at least as big as Phobos, and they're traveling in their modal form, which is um, basically the size of a large handkerchief. So you can stack a lot of them in one place um, as long as they're in that form. Um, so anyway, they know they're in trouble. They know of us. They're a naturally peaceful race. They decide that they want to make contact with us and basically, um, arrange a trade. So they're, you know, they're willing to, um, exchange technology and, um, and information for a place to fix their ship, breed so they can continue to travel. The only problem is there are 20 billion of them. Right. And, you know, $20 billion in, in, a, in a world ship is maybe doable, but when they transition to their other form, which is the size of a small pony, there's the problem. Where are you going to put $20 billion small ponies. small ponies anywhere? And at this point in time in the story, um, the solar, we're just still beginning to explore the solar system, and it's going to take a lot longer than I think, think people think. So the time frame is about 150 to 200 years in the future. We do have a colony on Mars. We do have, we do have uh, uh, settlements on the moon. We're starting to uh, mine Jupiter for um, the gases in the atmosphere. Um, you know, there's a fledgling society out in the belt. These are very, you know, uh, familiar right. concepts. But the problem is it's still very hard to get from one place to another. Uh, we don't, we're not yet at the point in time where, you know, uh, Earth and Mars are going to go to war or anything like this. But 
the problem is that um, humans are going to want this technology, and we're territorial. And some, I mean, we're all going to want this, te this technology, but no one is going to be willing to give up the, um, uh, the light with the resources. I mean, where are you going to put 20 billion people? There's not room on that on, on Earth. Uh, the moon is in this time is rather um, provincial place. Um, they don't want aliens. Um, Mars, you'd, Martians would have to go up two thirds of the planet. Um, so we got to make sure you don't get in. Like we got to make sure you have something that people. Are... Okay, so I won't. I, I, I was wondering where I should cut it off. Anyway, so basically, this is the nature of the story where you get to you get to meet the aliens. Um, you're introduced to the um, the quandary that humans are facing as. How, how do we come to an arrangement with the aliens? Because they're nice people, but when push comes to shove, everything wants to survive. Right. And so, you know, they would, they would, they're not war, warlike, but it's, you know, they can learn if they have to. Right. So we have a, we have a vested interest in making a deal with them. Um, are, who's willing to pay the price? What will that price be? And what's, what, what's that resolution? So yeah. I'll just leave it there. Good, and that story is white elephant. Exactly, and it's a very apt title. Good. So now, Dow. I guess first of all, I mean, we're going to talk about you know several questions about your your art, which I like to do. But um, so you do computer art, digital art, digital art. Yeah. Correct. So as compared to grat oil or mm -hmm. acrylics and something like that. Mm -hmm. So how did you? Did you were you at home and you had your um, little laptop computer and first of all started off with your Microsoft Word Paint program and then build it <laughs> from there? How how'd you get into you know being able to do that? Oh yeah, for sure. So uh, my workflow when it comes to creating digital arts um, is um, I mostly work in Photoshop, so that's kind of like my go-to. And I would always carry around with me a, a, a sort of like a drawing pad. And in a way, you can think of it as like a digital canvas. And so sure. you just kind of have a, a pad that you have, and then you kind of have a, a, a stylus pen. That's what they call it. And then, you know, in a, when you put down your pen, you, there's a cursor that will appear on the screen. And in a way, it will act like as if it's like a digital canvas. Um, and so that's sort of the tool that I use uh, when creating uh, my digital art pieces. Um, for the particular piece that I did for the last history, um, the process that was um, involved in making the piece was actually both um, the process of doing both 2D and 3D. Yeah. And so throughout the piece, you can kind of see that there's like a big, you know, atmospheres and, and large space and environments. And a lot of that was actually achieved by, by me creating 3D models and 3D assets and kind of like placing them, putting them together in a way kind of like putting Legos together, mm. if you can think of it that way. Um, but yeah, it was just so much fun to be able to craft and build my own world based off of, of like, you know, the amazing story of Sam. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of like inventing your own space, inventing your own world and kind of putting that all together piece by piece. And yeah, yeah there's, there's a book uh, called Art with essays by Aaron Hubbard and he has different essays in there on depth and how you can create depth either with uh, focal focal points, you know, mm -hmm. with, with lines, with with the color palette to be able to you know what makes it look like it's in front versus back, you know, and what what will collapse depth, what will create depth, is gone over, you know, um, 
you know, as supplemental reading given to the to all the winners. Mm-hmm. And also one thing that several of the um like B. Jackson, who's she was a grand prize winner for volume twenty four, she's mm-hmm. now a judge. You know, she says, I remember all these years, you know, that that art is a quality of communication, you know, and it's got to achieve communication as the senior senior dating. It's got you got what's your message, especially when you're talking about illustration, you know, because it's an illustration tells a story. Mm-hmm. You know, if it doesn't, then it's not illustration. Right. You know, so that right there, that art that you've got um, is fantasy at that point because it's the story is, is fantasy. But mm-hmm. do you do mostly fantasy art or science fiction art, or does it not matter? So I actually started off doing fantasy art um, because one of the first. Um, intellectual properties that I was introduced to um, was Lord of the Rings. And so that to me was kind of like my first introduction to fiction art in general. And so I was always drawn to, you know, drawing orcs and elves and, 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 you know, medieval armor knights with huge spikes and all that stuff. Um, But as I got more comfortable with, you know, doing more concept art and getting into more fiction art, um, I started becoming a lot more interested in, in, in science fictions as well. One of the most recent IPs that I was introduced to, um, I'm not sure if you guys are familiar, um, it's an IP called Dune. Um, and it's just a great, beautiful world building with a lot of sci-fi elements that I'm a huge fan of. So, yeah. Oh, good. So, now on that, on the story that you illustrated, why did you pick that particular scene? Because that's near the end of the story. Right, yeah. So, um, I... Definitely don't want to get into too much of that. Uh, not too much of a spoiler, but... Not too much of a spoiler, yeah. Um, but I think for me, um, I, when I first, you know, read the stories, um, you know, it's just, you know, first things first, it's such a huge sense of world building that Sam has created. And uh, I was actually talking to Dave when I first met him the first, first time. And I was just telling Dave about how, you know, the the story that, that Sam created, it just really immersive and kind of puts you in that space. And so initially it was very, very difficult for me to, to kind of be able to kind of choose, mm-hmm. you know, what will be... so much stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. And in a way it was a bit overwhelming because you're like, oh man, there's just so much happening. And it's like, what, like how could I best portray this story in, in one image? And, you know, just going through that story. And, and I remember, you know, the finale, um, just being really in awe of, you know, the final scene where you're kind of introduced to this grand statue. And to me, it, it felt like it was kind of like a right moment to kind of portray, to represent everything that was happening in the story. Because, you know, everything that was going on and, and as you venture and as you, you know, journey through the story with, you know, the characters, you know, it's it all kind of leads up to that one final moment where you're confronted, you know, in front of this 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 sort of deity or this, this figure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I, I figured, you know, that was... And what was way. that story? The Last History. Absolutely. It was just the thing that, I mean, I've been doing this for a while, you know, writers and illustrators of the future. And one thing, because I was just meeting with uh, a representative from Locust Magazine and from Galaxy's Edge Magazine, and I was just saying that, you know, because I was being interviewed, like, so what do you get out of it? What's in this, you know, with you? What makes this so special? For me, it's how every year, because there's not, I mean, there, there's a variety of tropes, but every year there's such amazingly 
an amazing diversity of storytelling that comes in there. And then for illustrators, like we got winners from nine countries this year. And so, you know, we've got, you know, Vietnam, we had Korea, we had um, China, we had uh, Costa Rica and several, I mean, it was nine total. And what's amazing is like the styles of those countries quite frequently shines through, you know, and it didn't used to be that since Echo's come on board as the coordinating judge, she's like really opened it up. So it's, it truly is international in scope. And because illustration doesn't have a language and you can have somebody who reads English read to you in your native tongue. So even if you don't read, can't read the story, somebody can read it to you and you can, and you can paint it regardless. Um, so we've got these winners from all over the world that come in, but they represent different styles of art, which I just, I love. It's just, to me, one of the most amazing and rewarding things is just seeing how much art can be celebrated around the world. And Dow, with you, we had the Vietnamese TV was there, you know, interviewing you. He was in the audience. When you announced the grand prize winner, he was crying. Mm-hmm. He was no so way. happy, so elated, so like, you know, jumping out of his skin with with so much you know, admiration, you know, for you, but also for them, for, for the contest that there's something exists that has no preconceived ideas. You can be any age, any nationality, any ethnic, whatever sexual persuasion. And it's just, it's just, are you a good artist? And there's no idea like it. Well, we've got to, we got to celebrate Canadians. So we need to do this, this year we got to do, you know, um, Australia. It's not the judges have no clue when they're judging. So when you won, and then we find out when they send in the judging, oh, and you know, we're tracking it because for the four first place writer winners, all the judges judge and and that the scores change, you know, as and Joni would come in and tell us, okay, so right now such and such is in the lead. Okay, this is in the lead. Okay, well, it's looking really good for this one here. And then all of a sudden three more votes come in and it changes. And with the illustrators, it's it's all twelve artists are up there, so it's constantly going up and down. Like who's in the lead right now? And um, so when we find out when they all come in, because they don't know who it is either, they just know it's number this, number that. So it's it's such a, a treat to find out. And then she say, okay, good. So this is this is the winner, and we find out usually a few weeks in advance. We find out who the grand prize winners are, and it's um it's so amazing. We had a and we've had winners from all over the world, you know, each, each year. So it's, for me, it, it's a real treat to have, you know, the, this contest and, and just a variety of winners and the diversity of styles of art and the amazing, like, who could have thought about, you know, White Elephant as, as an story idea. It's like, wow, where'd that come from? Or these foxes, you know, where'd that come from? And... So all these, they're just so different, so diverse. So when when the judges say on their, you know, they send their, their kudos or their blurbs in, they say, yeah, I can guarantee you're something for everybody. And their reviews are coming in from, um, like Library Journal just came in while we were getting ready to start this workshop. They're saying, it's great. And that goes to all the librarians. So that, that gets librarians doing it. And we had another Midwest book review said amazing things about it that, 
This really is the feature of science fiction and fantasy. And it bears out because you see the, the success rate of, of writers and artists. So on your, on your art, where do you, you've, you're working now. You've got a professional capacity. What do you, what do, you do? Correct. Yeah, so currently I am very fortunate to have been picked up by film studios um, where I just am so privileged to be able to create concept art mm. um, for, for so many projects. And it's just been, it's just been a huge joy to be able to, to work. Um, and funnily enough, you know, I was talking to you know, some of the, the, the fellow illustrators and writers. You know, um, to me, sometimes it doesn't really feel like work because, you know, I just get to do what I do every day, right, but <laughs> I'm getting paid on top of that and I'm learning. Uh -huh. So it's just, it's just been a huge blessing. Yeah. Craig Elliott, you know, cause he does concept art for, now he's Disney. He was in charge of the, of the, of uh, Netflix and that, then Disney got him back. Cause mm -hmm. a lot of the animated movies that you see, you know, the big ones they come out with, that's Craig Elliott as the, chief creative on yeah, that right and it's, awesome. it's just amazing um i mean he's one i want to if you're interested to connect you up with mm -hmm. you know as a grand prize winner because he's i mean obviously you've got a job doing really well right now but he might be able to provide extra extra tips for you because he's one you know i said he's the creative director there now at at uh disney he never entered the illustrators of the feature contest mm -hmm. he read it since the very first book mm -hmm said, I wasn't good enough. I never thought I was good enough to enter. Mm. Yeah, his person now is the senior designer in the most beloved movies. Uh -huh. That's that amazing. are making hundreds of millions of dollars. Yeah. But he thought, I'm not good enough. And so now I want to address um, a message from first you, Dave, and then you, Dow, on to aspiring writers. Like, you give me your story, but... Um, Cautionary tales, things that if you had a chance to do it again, you'd change, um, and what you've learned along the way that might save others some unnecessary grief. Okay, so um, let's see. Trying to think about, uh, I don't know what to do first, cautionary tales or... or um, Whatever bubbles up first. Okay, <laughs> so uh, advice. Um, you have to persevere. Um, I'm at the point where I'm starting to sell stories, but um, stories come back a lot more often than they than they stay, <laughs> and uh, the markets are tight these days. So that's good in one way, bad in another. There's very high quality out there, but that means that you've got to write high quality to get to get published. Um, so you really have to persevere, and you really cannot take it personally. And even saying that, I have to tell myself all the time not to take it personally. In fact, when I you know, when I track my stories, I used to word the use of rejected. Well, I don't use the word rejected anymore because that's a negative connotation. They get returned to me. Mm -hmm. And quite often they get returned to me. It has nothing to do with the quality. That's right. And, it, and that's something that people really don't quite understand is that your stories did not simply fit what that publication needed at that time. They can't buy everything. They can't buy something and let it sit on the shelf for um, for two years before they use it. A story that, that got returned one day might, might have been accepted a few months later when they suddenly did have a spot for that story. So, I mean, at some point, yes, you have to have the quality, but even the best story will get returned. That's right. And so 
Don't take that personally. Don't take it as a judgment on who you are. Just keep writing. Another piece of advice is um, follow the guidelines. These people have an immense amount of material they go through mm -hmm. on a daily basis. And this is one of those situations where if they want you to do something in a particular format, um, font, uh, whatever it is, follow those guidelines because they are going to have to look at 20, 30, 40 stories that day. And you don't want to make it any harder for them than it is because, uh, like I said, there's a lot of people out there who want to get published. So listen to what they say you know, and follow, follow the thing. Something else I guess I would really recommend is you have to, and this is probably the most important thing I think, is you have to learn how to self-edit. So you're going to show your stuff to your friends, uh, maybe a writing group. They're going to give you feedback. Some of it's going to be nice. Some of it's going to be self-serving. But in the end of the day, they're not the one writing the story. That's right. They're not the one who had the, who had the uh, creative vision that made that story happen. Only you are the person who did that. And at the end of the day, you have to decide when your story is finished or good enough to go send off. And keep in mind that there aren't very many quality markets out there right now. So I know that when I first started writing to publish again a couple of years ago, um, I would write a story I liked. I would send it out to you know the, the, some of the top of the you know the, the very top thing, and um, they would be returned. And in those cases. Um, it didn't really matter whether, I don't even know if it was a good story anymore because I wasn't following the guidelines. I wasn't editing it. Well, I mean like typos, um, it wasn't being, it wasn't polished enough. Right. And so what I would really recommend to somebody, if you write something, unless you're some, unless you're a Stephen King and, and like no one else is out there is Stephen King except for Stephen King, write it, put it away for a while until you can come back and look at it with fresh eyes. Revise it again. It's easy these days with word processors. I normally do that three times before I think about sending it out anywhere. And you'll know if you take a look at it. And um, the first time you go back and look at it, it might take you a day to write. You may have all sorts of changes you want to make. But that's fine. You put it away again. Come back a little bit later. Look at it. Now you have fewer changes. Eventually, it's going to get to the point where either you're not coming up with any substantive changes or you're writing it a little differently that day because you simply feel a little differently. But either version, either version is fine. And so at that point, you realize, okay, I've made this about as good as I think it needs to be, as I can make it, send it out, see what people think. But if you don't go through that process, you're burning your best markets before your story has ever had a real chance of getting accepted anywhere. So, And it's not like you're adding, you know, like if you try to do 10 stories and let's say it takes you Three months to go that through that process for a story, it's not like you're taking 10 times three months and that adds up to 30 months. You're just taking your entire pipeline and moving it back three months. You know, while that one's sitting in the drawer, you write another story, you know, and then another one after. And like, um, you know, whenever you go back to look at the first one, well, you just moved everything back in the pipeline. So you're really not slowing yourself down, but what you really are doing is giving yourself the chance to write the best story that you can with what you've got there and also giving it the best chance to sell. So I'm much more sort of in favor of uh, advice as opposed to cautionary tales, okay, because good. everyone's different. So that would be my advice. Um, cautionary tales, uh, you're going to hear a lot of writing advice out there um, from very well-intentioned people. There's all sorts of ways to write. There's all sorts of different kind of writers. You have to find what works for you. And 
we've just been in a week of workshops, <laughs> and these people, and these are these are insanely successful people. I mean, really, very successful. And they're arguing with each other all the time. Exactly. From one hour to the next, you can hear diametrically opposed uh, opinions about stories. And that's very healthy because we're not there to, you know, be uh, be um, have one method beaten into our heads. They're giving us this whole smorgasbord of possibilities. Listen, find out what, what resonates with you and go with it. Absolutely, absolutely. So yourself now, your turn, you're on, Dow. So advice and cautionary tales. You might not have a whole lot of cautionary tales because you're still basically a pup. Yeah. But, <laughs> but at least advice because you definitely, you definitely had your own curve. So go ahead. For sure, yeah. And, and I think, you know, when you, um, one of the things that you mentioned that really resonated with me was the, the story about Craig Elliott, how, you know, just being the top, one of the top designers that he is, you know, he's always struggled with, you know, um, overcoming that fear. And I think I resonate a lot with that. Um, I think when I first entered the Illustrators of the Future contest and was, you know, rejected the first time or, or had my stuff returned back to me, you know, it, it was that, it's like, oh man, like this is, you know, I'm, I'm never going to do this again. It's like, oh man, they, they don't like me. It's like, this is not good enough. And it was actually Joni was the person that actually reached out to me and encouraged me to try again. Wow. And so it's it's funny, yeah, because I don't think if, if it wasn't for Joni, I think I would just try just like kind of let go and forget about it. Um, and so I think, you know, for me, it was, you know, just learning to kind of let go of that fear, just um, in a way, kind of just let your your art go and not having to worry too much about, oh, it's like, oh, what are people are going to think about it? Or, you know, how, how you know, like, how, how are people going to look at it and see it? And, and in a way, just kind of, let yourself be in a space where, you know, it's 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 okay to 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 fail, and it's okay to you know have your stuff be returned back to you because you know at the end of the day, it's it's all it's all a learning experience, mm-hmm. and 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 that's you know, and I think that's just what makes it such a huge joy because you know everything is just um, it's just a big you know able if you're able to kind of learn out of every moment that it is, and so yeah, I guess for me, it's, you know, it's just like. Just, just have fun with what you do, and don't, don't be too cautious about, you know, what other might, people might think and how, how, how your art is gonna, you know, turn out and stuff like that. And just enjoy the moment that you can, and and yeah, just like not have let that fear come. Let me jump back in here too, because sure, that really sure. resonates with me. Um, because one nice thing about either art or writing is that everything you do is practice. In a sense, you learn as much about writing something bad as you do about writing something good. That's right. So. And it's it's a journey. You're going to get there. Um, and I think um, I know one of the things that always stopped me was actually fear of um, this is sound weird fear of success. Mm-hmm. Um, not that I would be big and you know I'd be, but the fact is that uh, I remember the time I uh, this was about a long time ago when I was was getting ready to go to um, uh, Clarion. I sent out a story to um, Analog Magazine, and I was scared to death because I thought it might be good enough to sell. And you know, before when you write something and it's bad, well, you, you know, you figure, okay, they're going to send it back, so I'm not, that's, not, I'm not, that's not good, but no one's going to read it and judge me. But as, but as soon as it's out there and anybody can pick that up and read me and read that and say, you know, that's not very good or has problems with it, then that's that fear of being judged. And you you really shouldn't let that hold you down. Right. Um, uh, I've only, I've actually taken a few, a few art classes a long time ago. Oh, cool. And... Um, 
when they do is they set you down like with uh, with charcoal as they give you um, they give you um, two minutes to draw something literally two minutes because you can't screw it up anymore in two minutes than you ever will <laughs> it will be the worst picture possible in two minutes and then as as the, cl the class goes on they give you five minutes and then they give you ten minutes and it takes you longer to screw it up every time or get to the point where you know it's going to reach some level of good or bad and that's after that you stop so it was really it was really astounding to me when they did that they said no just take it okay now throw that away try it again you know just practice over and over again mm -hmm. learn a little bit every time you know get better like you said don't be afraid of failure you know um take take criticism you know particularly it's criticism that makes sense but again uh you realize that not everyone's gonna like your stuff um, I think one thing that people get in their head is that what they're going to do is going to change the world. And a good story is a wonderful thing, but it's not going to change the world. Um, one of the things that uh, I, is a writing exercise you can do if you have a bunch of people is, I don't know if we're out of time. or, or No, we're good. Okay. Uh, is you can actually tell people to make a list of their three favorite authors. There's no real criteria, just three authors that mean something to you. And if you tell, ask people that, they'll say, well, is, you know, what should I, you know, it's not a test, right? Just give me your three. You put that, all those lists together, you hand it back to people and you say, oh, which of these authors do you like, which do you not? And you just do this in a round, a round circle. And you'll be amazed at how many people don't like your favorite author. You know, I remember doing this in Roger Zelazny was on that list for me. And some people said that the guy leaves me cold. You know, how could you not like Roger Zelazny? <laughs> yeah. so, Prior judge. And, and so the, the idea being that everybody's going to respond to your, your stuff differently. You're never going to please, you know, 100% You shouldn't people. try to. You're, mm -hmm. It's pretty hard to even displease 100% of the people. So just do what's important to you and get it out there, learn from it, and let the world um, take it as they will. Good, good. So Mr. Hubbard created this contest 40 years. He, start, he launched it in 1983, and um, it's been going now, 39, now we're in our 40th year. What, you know, your perspective as an artist, Dow, um, what kind of a person, you know, do you think, as Mr. Hubbard was when he created it, what kind of a person would actually create a contest and continue to endow it year after year after year for the aspiring artist? So what kind of a person would, would that would that be? Yeah, and I, you know, for me, I think um, when I think about Mr. Hubbard, I think it all comes down to to passion. It's right, you know, for me, it's like I I do what I love uh, because you know I'm passionate about it, and mm -hmm. I I find joy and and peace and comfort in doing what I do. And I think that that comes in a lot of you know in in ways where you know people tend to pursue and go forth with what they do because I think, you know, passion is it, it, a big part of it. And, and in a way, you know, you're, you're enjoying that process and you're having a lot of fun and you get to share that joy with other people around you. I think that, that to me, it, I think that's what kind of makes it, it is so, so special and unique. And I think that's, yeah, what Mr. Hubbard's able to do. It's, it's great. It's awesome. Good. And you, Dave, so he was obviously one of the top-selling writers in the 30s, pulp fiction, right. writing in every genre, 15 different pen names, because sometimes he was in three different magazines with different right. stories, different pen names. Mm -hmm. So as a writer, what's your perception of, of Mr. Hubbard as an author who's created this possibility for yourself, you know, right. 39 years down the road? to have this opportunity. 
Well, I guess I'm not sure I'm answering the same question that Dao is, but th when he were talking, the words that came into my mind was vision and generosity, vision to 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 you know see into the future and and also to recognize the importance of that, but also then just the generosity to just you know uh, pay it forward and. That's definitely something we've seen in the contest, is that one of the things that really surprised me was how, how giving uh, the, writer, the authors who are in here talking to us are. I mean, they're going way above and beyond to, to um, not only help us for these few days, but to clearly be prepared to help us in the future, you know? And I think our genre is a little different than other genres, I don't know if the other genres have this kind of almost mentor-student relationship, but these people really mean it. So, and that's kind of the spirit for why he started the, the contest. You know, uh, uh, pay it forward, um, contribute to the whole, make the world a better place. Yeah, it's it's interesting because even in his in his youth, because a lot of these essays that you read in the in the workshop, those are essays he wrote in the '30s and '40s, published in the like. Writers Digest and those magazines to help aspiring writers and C.L. Moore, who was one of the Golden Age authors. Right. There's a, a book we have called Letters and Journals um, with, with Mr. Hubbard, and she wrote this most endearing letter to, to Ron Hubbard, helping her, you know, as a writer. And they, they had maintained, you know, friendship over the years. She was one of the first judges okay. for the contest. But you see so many of these these artists and judges um, that were on board at the, at the get-go were that were his peers, and then it continues on. So it is a, a definite paying for it. We're now like you know 40 years down the road. Right. And I mean his first materials were published in the early 1920s, so it's been almost a century yeah. you know, that he's been an author. But it's just a I don't know if it's I've heard it's more in science fiction and fantasy than any other genre, that sense of paying it forward, putting it there for the future you know, generation of artists and for writers. But it was the last genre he wrote in, and I honestly think that, because he says in the, um, in the first um, volume, first Rise of the Future volume, See, a culture is as rich and as capable of surviving as it has imaginative artists. The artist is looked upon to start things. The artist injects the spirit of life into a culture. And nothing does that better than science fiction and fantasy. Envisioning right. and, and conceiving these new realities, these new worlds. Some are, you know, are exciting. Some are scary. Mm -hmm. You know, like I asked about the cautionary tales, right. you know, on a small scale, but on a large scale too, it says things, okay, if, you know, we're seeing what, who's, who got it right on the AI, yeah. you know, because it's been being talked about for mm -hmm. half a century at least. So, um, but you take a look in, in this, in the contest, what we've had is, I mean, such amazing, from the, from the start of the, you mentioned Zelazny, but Jack Williamson, John Varley, Theodore Sturgeon, Bob Silverberg, Charles Sheffield, Jerry Purnell, these are all past judges, Andre Norton, Larry Niven, C.L. Moore, and McCaffrey. Uh, Frank Herbert was a judge, now his son is a judge. Hal Clement, Scott Card, Ramsey Campbell, Algis Budras, Ben Bova. You know, and then we have several of the judges that are still with us on the writer's side. And on the art side, Ed Cartier, 
Vincent DeFate, uh, Diane and Leo Dillon, uh, Leo passed away. Diane's still alive. She still judges in, there in New York. Will Eisner has got his own award now at, at uh, Comic-Con. Frank Vazetta was a judge, one of the first judges. Frank Kelly Free is the original coordinating judge. Um, Shun Kojima, Jack Kirby, Paul Lair, and Mobius, Alex Schomburg, H.R. Van Dongen, William R. Warren. These are all major names right. in, mm-hmm. in uh, science fiction fantasy culture. And these were all, they all came on board in support of Mr. Hubbard's vision. And so you're going to go out there now as a writer, as an, and you're going to be an inspiration for others. Hopefully. Not hopefully, absolutely. <laughs> you know, I'm speaking from experience. I've been doing this okay. for longer than the year yes. that you're experiencing it right now. Yeah. The fact that the number of people that always wanted to be a writer, and for whatever reason, I had one doctor, this is maybe 20 years ago, he'd always wanted to be a writer, but he, he just couldn't cut it, you know? So he, instead he was, uh, became a medical doctor because that's something he could confront doing. Right. And he worked emergency room. And then when he won the grand prize, he told his story, you know, so then he, he transferred over to becoming a writer. But it's, uh, it's a scary proposition, you know, to yeah. do that. And so the idea of a second career as an author is absolutely possible. You entered how many times? Just the one, actually. So you're very much the exception to the rule because some people up there on the stage last night have been... But keep in mind, I, I mean, I have been writing for, for 40 years. So yeah. Yeah. it's not like, oh, yeah, it's easy. It's not easy. But yeah. I just fell into it at the right time. Yeah. yeah. That's good. And then for yourself, you said you, you, this was your second time that you entered? Second time, correct. Good, you know, but the number of people that, especially artists that like, no, I'm not good enough. I can't do it. I'm not going to do this. Mm. It's really popular out there. And it, you know, as, as, a, as a mental condition of like, I'm not good enough. Yeah. You know, the uh, imposter syndrome on both sides of the table, oh, yeah. the writer oh, and yeah. artist. Mm-hmm. So um, it's just a, uh, it's something people need to deal with. So by listening to what you have to say, hopefully they'll say, okay, I will enter the con. The worst, is, the worst that's going to happen is you'll get a letter or an email saying, thank you very much, submit again. And, and, and they mean that, by the way, because they really do want to see your stories. See, see your efforts again. Yeah, totally. yeah, and um, even for the hardcore people like yourself, Dow Joni's going to reach out to you and take you by the <laughs> by the scruff of the neck oh, yeah. and saying, "Submit again." Yeah. Mm-hmm. So um, anyway, it's been great having you both on. So for somebody to find you, Dow, how where can they go find you on the website or on social media? Yeah, so um, I guess you can just. Go on Google and type my name, Dao V, and uh, Spell it. his first name is D-A-O, last name is V-I. Um, and yeah, you can find me on Instagram. Um, I post mostly my work on Instagram, but I also do a bit of art station as well. Um, but yeah, I'm sure if you type in my name, you'll, you'll be able to find me. Great. And Dave? Well, for one thing, I don't have a cool name like Dao V. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, at the moment, um, I am... Um, uh, I have. I really don't have much of a social presence, but it, this has obviously been brought home to me that yes, I need a social presence. So I'll be bringing up a website pretty soon and uh, doing the Facebook thing. So uh, at the moment, you'll probably won't have any luck finding me. Well, you will because your name's listed on Rise of Future Volume Thirty Nine, which will be found on Goodreads. They'll be able to find your name there, and they'll find your name on Amazon as an Amazon author. Okay. that's going up as this book okay. is published. But anyway, so at some point here, I'll have a, I'll have a website. <laughs> 
and um, uh, I'm obviously got things in the works. So good. And so for the begin with, you can find out him at Rise of the Future Volume Thirty Nine. And everybody needs to get and read this book. If you're an aspiring writer or artist, this shows you how good you have to be in order to make it to this to this level and for this market. And if you love good science fiction and fantasy, this is the book to read because that's what it is. It's, yeah, it's, it's a good read. And like like uh, John's saying, if you want to know about the contest, read the book. Great. Awesome. Great. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network, where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. We're especially appreciative of our sponsor, Carnation, for supporting this podcast. Carnation has been making delicious milk products for over a century and is still going strong. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Dave and Dow. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.